The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. What would your life look like if you lived without fear? Hey listeners, welcome to In the Arena. I'm Jackie Goldberg. And I'm Leah Smart. And today we have the privilege of having Mike Romoff join us. So welcome, Mike. Thank you. Thank you. Can't wait to talk to you. So Mike is the Vice President of Global Agency and Channel Sales here at LinkedIn. And he has been at LinkedIn for over eight years. Yeah. Right around. Great. So funny enough, I have known Mike's name for a while, but I didn't actually meet him till super recently. And I knew as soon as we met in our 30 minute meeting that we had to have him on the podcast. (laughs) So we are here here with Mike, and we're going to get to know him along with all of you listeners. All right, yeah. let's do it. Thanks cool. so much for coming. I mean, Leah was so excited after your first conversation. <laughs> Don't overhype it. Don't yeah, overhype yeah. It. it hasn't happened yet. You're right. You're right. Let's, let's, let's get, <laughs> let's get going. Decide. Yeah. So as is tradition on In the Arena, we love to start with some speed dating questions just to okay. get you in the arena, get you a little bit vulnerable with us. Um, so are you down for our game? All right. Let's awesome. do it. All right. So, Mike, what is the first thing you intentionally do when you wake up? So, gosh, I mean, this is new as of this year, so I don't represent like this has been my entire life, but um, I do try to meditate uh, when I wake up for a good while. Uh, And recently I've been working out. So I've been trying to have a before everybody wakes up meditation and workout, and then the rest of the day is sort of smooth sailing. Whatever happens, happens. Cool. So we'll see how long that lasts. It's just still February. So. And is there a particular meditation that you like? Yeah. I mean, I, uh, I usually come from the Tibetan Buddhist tradition and so more about compassion. Mm. Um, so really thinking about other people specifically. Um, there's a specific kind of meditation where you essentially pray for all of the bad and negative things in a specific person to become removed and come into you. And any kind of goodness that you have, willingly give over to them. Um, And you start with someone you like and who you love because it's easy. Then you start with someone you're neutral Mm. with. um, And then you you go to someone who actually you have problems with or troubles you or challenges you. And that's actually where the most juice is. People who kind of have the most to gain from that practice is where you kind of get the most mojo. So it's it's a it can be challenging, but I found it to be really rewarding. Wow. So you're asking people with negative energy. You're asking to take on their energy. Uh, I had. So I live in lower Manhattan. Yeah. Right. So I looked out my window, look uptown. The U.N. was in session. I had a meditation where Mahmoud Ahmadinejad from, you know, from Iran was it the at the U.N. like at that time. And I had like a meditation where I prayed for like all of the bad stuff to come out of him and into me and anything that I had was good to go into him. And, you know, you're safe in that process, right? Because there's nothing that actually can come into you from a karmic perspective. Um, But just that intention and really believing it is, is super powerful. So it's much easier when you like pray for your mom, yeah. right? Wow. That, one, that one's a lot easier. We haven't even practiced it. And I feel so powerful, like, like, like just listening level. to, yeah. yeah. Wow. Wow, that's amazing. Well, I mean, that's compassion, right? Yeah. Like oh. that's, that's really, you know, the Others. definition of yeah. it. Yeah. yeah. All right. So where is your favorite place that you've taken pictures? So um, I like to take pictures, but I like to take pictures of people. 
So I actually don't really care where we are so much. I used to be like really dogmatic about fancy cameras and like I used to be a medium format photographer. So like really big negatives. I'd make big prints. And like if anyone did anything else, I think they were crazy. And now in my like, you know, middle age parent life, I have like a toy like Fuji Polaroid kind of camera, um, which I love because you get instant gratification. People aren't used to having anything physical, especially kids. I think it's like the craziest thing to take a picture and then you have it. Um, so true. So t- taking pictures of people like that. We had sales kickoff a couple of years ago in Vegas. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I dressed up like Johnny Depp in Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas and had that camera. <laughs> and so I went around and took pictures of people. I probably gave out a couple hundred pictures that night. A lot of people actually thought I was hired by LinkedIn. <laughs> they, didn't, they couldn't tell that it was me. Yeah, that was um, and that to me was the most fun. I kept yeah. a couple really good ones and some for incriminating evidence, but mostly they were <laughs> They're really fun. Wow, such an impact on other people. And I, I love the Fuji film that it came back, right? That used totally. to be an old school. Yeah, yeah. Right. that was yeah. like so magic for yeah. kids. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so on your LinkedIn profile, you talk about overly large instruments. Yeah. So can you tell us what overly large instruments do you have in your home? I've been playing a lot of classical Indian music for the last bunch of years. And so those instruments tend to be really big. So I took sitar lessons. Um, So sitar is a decent size. I have a Cerberar, which is the bass version or like the big version of a sitar. And then I have a tambora, which is like if you listen to Indian music, there's sort of that background kind of drone and like all of those resonances. It's just it's that instrument. But they're like six feet tall. Like I think one is five feet tall. And, you know, we, still, we live in Manhattan. You know? like, <laughs> That's we, what's going on uh, in my mind. You know, right? Like, do you have a five-bedroom for the, I mean, no, the like, instruments? We, we, like, our, our apartment's nice, but, like, you know, we have two kids and, like, you know, a bunch of instruments. A bunch of but, instruments. You know, my wife is very good at interior design. They sort of get absorbed into, mm. into the apartment. And then I've been playing the harmonium, which is oh, also, cool. like, a classical Indian instrument, which is much smaller um, but I have two of them. So it it's takes like a little size. piano, right? Yeah, it's like a hand organ. Yeah, um, okay. It's like if you go to yoga, they play it a lot at yoga classes. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so I, I played that and took some classical Hindustani chanting lessons for a while because it seemed like a good idea. <laughs> I like it. Adventurous. Um, all right, so last question. In another life, I'd be... <laughs> In another life, I'd probably be right here, to be honest. <laughs> I mean, I feel like I've done a lot of work in my life to actually be given this opportunity. Even to just be on this podcast talking about mindfulness, that was not like a preordained thing when I was a Jewish guy growing up in New Jersey, like that I would be at LinkedIn talking about mindfulness on a podcast and my classical Hindustani chanting. So. I don't know if there is another life. Like, I think this is like forces have kind of pushed me in this direction. And so I don't know. I think I think I'm here. This is the dream life. This is it. Great. Yeah. And a great segue into telling us about who you are. So would love to kind of hear like, what's your story? Jersey boy. Yeah, well, you got got the beginnings, (laughs) right? You got you got the beginnings. You know, my story, I think, is is really about having a I don't want to say awakening because that's a little bit overwrought, but more of a realization Mm -hmm. um, that a lot of the things that I learned growing up or the things that I took to be just the way that you act um, were not really in my best interest. 
And so, you know, I grew up in New Jersey. I'll give you my whole background. You know, I went to high school in Bergen County, went to Amherst College in Massachusetts, um, where I was not a very good student, you know, had a bunch of jobs. But I, I think, you know, I had always sort of thought of being the boss. You had to be a certain way and act a certain way. Even as a person, to get ahead, it was about getting ahead, right, and really understanding things from a zero-sum perspective, right? There's a fixed pie, and I'm going to take my piece, and sometimes I'm going to do it fairly, and maybe sometimes I'm going to do it unfairly. But that's just how it is, and if people are strong, they take it, and if they're weak, they get taken. And that is not my worldview, and that was also not a very healthy place to be. So I was working at NBC at the time. This is probably like I was trying to think before I came because I knew you were going to ask me this question. Mm-hmm. It's maybe like 12, 13 years ago. Don't check my LinkedIn profile because I might be wrong. Um, I was working at NBC and was super stressed out. It was like a terrible work environment. My boss was one of the least nice people I think I've ever met to this day. And I went home to my wife and I was like, I need to do something. And I was like, I'm going to do Tai Chi, like totally out of the blue. She was like, great. There's one next to the diner on like, you know, whatever, Franklin Turnpike. And so we went there smoking cigarettes, like in the car, pulling up to like the Tai Chi place or whatever. And, you know, I go and the class is terrible. And like, I hate Tai Chi. And it's like (laughs) super boring. And like, I'm like, I'm not going to come back. But the guy who ran the studio was super nice. And he was like, why don't you come take a yoga class? And I'm like, well, yoga, it's for girls. Like, it's not cool. Like, I have a million reasons not to do it. He's like, just come. And so I went and actually really resonated with him and his class. I was really bad at it. I mean, super inflexible, like wasn't doing anything like what you're supposed to be doing. He's like, just keep coming. And so I kept going probably for about a year, fairly regularly, still really not good. And then there was another class and teacher that was close by and got involved with them and was a little bit more advanced and started getting into that. And then like two years in, I was like, all right, this is like really resonating with me. I want to go a little bit deeper. You know, can I take private lessons? And went to the teacher and he was like, well, why don't you do yoga teacher training. And I was like, well, I don't want to be a yoga teacher. He's like, just take it to learn, you know, how to do it. And so this is northern New Jersey. So over nine months, one weekend a month, it was me and like 23 middle-aged housewives um, (laughs) taking yoga teacher training um, who either were recently divorced, about to be divorced, or contemplating divorce than me. I'm sure you heard it all from them. uh, It Mm -hmm. was, you know, I got to be the like male role model Mm -hmm. of like, you know, an upstanding citizen, which was interesting. Um, But around that time, I got into thinking about yoga, thinking about the different concepts and specifically around compassion and altruism, which was not about zero sum and not about grabbing from other people. My wife, who I think is central to my development spiritually, I mean, she comes from a pretty varied background, and she has a unique ability to provide spiritual curriculums for people. I'd say that's one of her strong skills. So she had given me this book called The Diamond Cutter, which I think you just I gave, gave that to, to me. Yeah, yeah. copies of it on my desk. Uh, it's like a business book about Buddhism. And it's a Western guy, went to Tibet and became ordained as a Tibetan monk and then came back and worked in the Diamond District in New York. So it's the Diamond Cutter because he actually worked with the Diamond Cutter. And there's the Diamond Sutra, which is one of the heart sutras from Tibetan Buddhism. And so I was like, I'm not reading that book. I totally did not read it. And then I got the flu and I was home for like a week. And I literally was like, all right, fine, I'll read it. 
and like read the whole thing. And it was really transformative for me in understanding karma and the laws of karma and how you think about other people. Not so much in the, you know, I'm going to be nice to you, you're going to be nice to me, but really putting energy out into the world that you want to receive. And so I'll tell you, I'll tell you one like very tangible implication of that was at the time, this is past NBC, I had left and started up an ad network. And so, you know, I work in advertising for people who know ad networks, they are not the most, you know, mindful, spiritual hotbeds uh, of business in the world. And I had come in and I said, I'm going to stop lying. Right. And I wasn't like saying I'm going to stop being, you know, embellishing or whatever. Like, I'm going to stop lying because, you know, part of being in a yogic tradition or really understanding karma is that lying is really bad. And like, I don't know how you have to go through so much education to come to the conclusion that lying is really bad, but it's bad. And so I'm like, wow, I'm lying like all the time, you know, and not like not embezzling money or like really bad stuff. My worst was the old. I didn't get back to someone on email and I'm like, oh, it got stuck in my spam mm-hmm. folder. I was like a three times a day like user <laughs> of that line and like so casually, right? I'm like, oh, it got stuck in my spam folder. And so I come in and everyone's like, how are you going to stop lying? Like it was, it seemed crazy. And I really did it. I was like, I'm not going to lie. And just even that alone, I could tell tangibly had like a positive impact on how I just how the world dealt with me. Like mm-hmm. I was just in a different space. And so I think after that, I was pretty hooked that this was a way of life and a way of being that really resonated with me. And so I think it's just really expanded from there. That's amazing. Did you feel like, I mean, I'm curious, as you started with this awakening concept, but did you feel like it was always there within you and it just needed to be peeled back because it was conditioned? Or did you feel like, wow, I found this new course and I'm going to make, I'm going to veer left instead of going straight? It's a great question. I think for me, it was a rediscovery. It felt more comfortable than it should have, to be honest. Like, it's pretty different, you know, than my growing up, than my tradition. No one in my family sort of, you know, comes from that kind of background. But it, it did feel like more of remembering something. I think that's why it resonated so much that once it sort of came back to the surface, it was, uh, you know, it was something that felt comfortable. Mm. You talked about being very stressed at your last job. And so you started taking on yoga and got into this work and a few years went by. How, How did that change for you from a work perspective or just like your internal stress levels? Yeah. Well, I mean, stress really comes from not having the right understanding of what's going on in the world. You know, stress is that you have an expectation of how the world should be in some way, and the world is not performing the way that you expect. And so as a result, you're stressed. And that's not the world's fault, that's your fault. And so for me, it was really getting very in-depth with what's real and what's not real. And so what's real is how you treat other people. What's real is the energy you put out into the world. What's real is, you know, loving people and helping them and supporting them. What's not real is like emails and deadlines and like all Mm. this other stuff. It doesn't mean that it's unimportant, right? And it doesn't mean that it doesn't impact your life or have real standing in getting a raise or supporting your family. Those things are all super important. But when you really have perspective on what's happening and what's real, mm-hmm. the things you get stressed about maybe change a little bit. 
you know? I mean, it's, it's not that I'm certainly not a stress-free human being, but I'm definitely not worried about the things that I was worried back then. Yeah. You know, how people look at you, you know, is your identity bound up in how other people perceive you, mm-hmm. things that are really outside of yourself. You give over all of that, that right. power and control. A lot of stress comes from that. A lot of stress came from that for me. Um, you know, and it's, it's been a big change to start to overcome that. I don't want to say that that's a done deal, but that's totally. the direction. And how do you go about maintaining that? So if you have a stress, stressful moment today, is there some sort of practice that you do or affirmation you say or breathing technique, or is it not that pointed? Yeah, no, it's, it's people ask this question. I wish I had like a better answer. Like for, for me, it's not, I don't have a great in the moment you know, and I'm not always great in the moment. It's more like trying to build up those muscles. So when something heavy comes, you're able to lift it. Mm-hmm. Totally. Um, yeah, and it's more sense. of a constant sort of practice. Yeah. You know, and at the beginning, I talked about waking up and doing meditation. Like, I took a many year break. I have little kids. Like, it is just not tenable, or at least I told myself it was not tenable, you know, to wake up early enough to make that happen. And this year changed. And so being back in, you know, a space where I'm in that meditative space and then coming into work and then interacting with other people, I'm reminded of how different it is. And so, you know, I guess my my real thinking about it is, you know, how can you just be in that space as much as possible? And so if something happens, you know, you've already prepared for that moment. I think once the moment comes, it's almost too late. You know, I mean, maybe you can have a mantra or you can have something that you mm-hmm. remind yourself or a way. But even that just is a touchstone back to a space that you've already kind of created. Like if you're waiting to kind of find mindfulness when something has come and like gotten you, I think it's I think it's too late. Mm-hmm. Totally. It's, um, I, I want to go back a little bit because you had this transition from what sounds like, you know, like I'm smoking cigarettes on my <laughs> yeah. way to Tai Chi. I, I love that you now put you're, that in there. <laughs> yeah, like, that really gave some color to like, the yeah, picture, yeah you know, what like, was really going on for yeah. you? Like your wife drops you off, yeah. smokes cigarette, put it out yeah. and go into Tai Chi. Yeah. But what I'm curious about is like, this is then a very real transition in your identity yeah. or the yeah. perceived identity that you have from the outside world. And I'm curious... What's that like to go through a transition like that when it comes to relationships and to yourself? Like, that's a big change. Yeah, yeah. yeah for, for sure. I think it was just having conviction that I really believe this, you know. And, you know, from a Tibetan Buddhist tradition, like, you've got this finite amount of time as a human in a precious human body to do something in the world. And the thing that you're trying to do is exhaust the most negative karma that you can and you know, create the most positive karma that you can. That's kind of it. And so if you look at it as a clock ticking down from now until whenever that transition happens, you've got a limited amount of time. And if you really believe that, well, you better get your ass out of bed and go (laughs) meditate. Like, you know what I mean? It's like, because you can't have it both ways. You can't both totally believe that that's the way the world is. And I believe that the system of, you know, causes and effects is what really controls reality. But I'm just going to sleep in because I'm tired, mm-hmm. right? Like those things are totally incompatible mm-hmm. with each other. And so I think, you know, for me, my conviction has grown stronger because I've seen all the empirical, like I'm a science math guy, you know, like I'm not like a 
religion, you know, major, like, you know, whatever, and didn't really study that stuff at all. I'm like a show me the evidence, you know, I want to empirically understand and feel what the impact is from doing this. And it's been long enough that I feel like I have that, Mm -hmm. you know, in days where I'm really in that flow. It's too serendipitous. You know, like, I mean, yes, coincidences can happen, but they can't happen that much, you know. And so you become a believer and you have faith. I mean, I think that's really what faith becomes and what that means. So if you're like, yeah, I really believe this is what it is, I'm a logical person. So the logical next step is I want to use as much of my energy and time as I can to be productive in the system that I believe in. And so, you know, Teacher training does that. So like, I don't, you know, for folks who have gone through teacher training, they're like, look to your left, look to your right. Like the friends that you have when you start are not going to be the friends you have when you end. And you're like, nah, whatever. It's not going to do that. And then by the end, you know, you see people physically look different, not just from their physical selves, but just energetically. And you just can't exist in the place that you existed before. So, yeah, it was a big change. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm lucky enough I had a partner through it. You know, I think my wife was a couple cycles ahead of me. So I got to, <laughs> I got to try yeah. to catch up to her a little bit. But, um, yeah, it was a big change. Yeah, it's like you're outstretching the box that you originally gave yourself. Yeah. Whatever that is. Yeah, that's yeah. right. You know, I, I really like Joseph Campbell, mm-hmm. um, if you, if you yeah. know him. And so, you know, in the hero's journey, when the hero's going out, you know, to start something new or gets his calling to start something out, there's always a little bit of luck. Like the gods always give a little bit of luck, which sort of gives you the impetus to keep going, right? So you you get called, you start your hero's journey, things are tough, but then there's like a little thing that like kind of makes you smile and you go. Mm -hmm. And so like for me going through that, it was, you know, these little serendipitous moments where, you know, something just, you're thinking about someone and the email pops up or you want to make something happen and the exact thing you need comes into your hand at the moment you need it. It's like, a little bit of luck that just kind of propels you forward mm-hmm. and then another and then another and then all of a sudden you're at work on a podcast talking about karma <laughs> and whatever else we're talking about and that seems totally normal. Yeah. Um, that, that's a big change. Yeah. yeah Dr. Uh, Joe Dispenza, if you all are familiar with him, he's a neurologist by like education, but he's actually become spiritual as well. So he writes books and does speaking events, bringing the head and the soul together. Mm. So he's incredibly powerful and it sounds like, you know, we would probably all benefit from that and everyone would. But he talked yesterday, I was listening to something he shared around synchronicity. Mm. And what he said is exactly what you're saying, which is there are no coincidences in this experience. We basically all have synchronicities that are telling us you're on the right path. It's that little thing that lets you go, okay, great, I'm going to keep going. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. From LinkedIn News, I'm Jesse Hempel, host of the Hello Monday podcast. In my 20s, I knew what career success looked like. In midlife, it's not that simple. Work is changing, we're changing, and there's no guidebook for how to make sense of it. So come figure it out with me on the Hello Monday podcast. 
I've been a journalist for two decades, writing cover stories for Business Week, Fortune, and Wired. And now, every Monday, I bring you conversations with people who are thinking deeply about work and where it fits into our lives, like Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella on growth mindsets. The learn-it-all does better than the know-it-all. Or NYU professor Scott Galloway on choosing a career. I think the worst advice you can give a kid is follow your passion. Or MacArthur Genius winner Angela Duckworth on talent versus grit. Your long-term effort and your long-term commitment are surprisingly important. Each episode delivers pragmatic advice for right now. Listen to Hello Monday with me, Jesse Hempel, on the LinkedIn Podcast Network or wherever you get your podcasts. So tell us a little bit about how this has impacted your family in terms mm. of your children, let's say. Yeah. Like, how do you yeah. bring this wisdom to your family? And then, you know, we are at work, right? Yeah. And we're also yeah. interested in, like, how do you bring this sure. to work? Yeah. You know, from a family perspective, I think it's been being really comfortable that this is who we are as a couple and this is what we believe. And, you know, we have large Indian instruments in our house <laughs> and we've got, you know, statues of different deities and all sorts of stuff. And it actually feels really authentic to us. So, you know, I think our, our kids will grow up with that being totally normal. You know, the way I did growing up, not with all that stuff and being in the suburbs and whatever. And so you know, people talk about being inspirational right as as like a separate activity and i don't know that that's really mm. true it's it's who are you and you know how are you actually acting and people can choose to draw inspiration or not and so you know for your kids they're going to look up to you anyway and so what example are they taking you know from from what you're doing and i think that's a good good segue for for work you know, like in some ways, being a Tibetan Buddhist and, you know, studying meditation, doing this stuff is much easier when you're in an ashram in India and like eating, you know, only vegetarian food and there's no temptations of the real world. Not that that's an easy life, but the distractions are such that, you know, at least that part of it is a little bit easier. It's hard to be in a, you know, place like LinkedIn, which is, you know, awesome to work at, but intense and lots of competing pressures. And, you know, it's easy to say, I totally believe in all this mindfulness, but the end of the quarter is coming <laughs> yeah. and I need to do all of this stuff. Yeah. So true. And I think, you know, for me, it was, it's a practice, you know, so it's, it's not a mastery, it's a practice. And so that practice is the people that you interact with inside work, it's people are just still people and you're interacting with them. And so this took a long time for me to really get comfortable with, but I am the same person by and large, you know, with maybe some minor exceptions inside the office and outside the office. And that was not the case at all for me. Like I was very guarded about my personal life. I was afraid people wouldn't like me, you know, if I was really honest and authentic about who I was. And then like the more open I was and, and vulnerable, it resonated. You know, and so I got a lot of that positive feedback. So, you know, when Leah and I met, you know, for a half hour meeting in a conference room, <laughs> you know, we're talking about all of this mindfulness stuff. I'm like, well, come over to my desk and like, you know, I have a bunch of crazy stuff sitting there and like, you know, give you a book and some other things and have a real conversation. Yeah. 
Yeah, I loved it at your desk. It was like there's statues, there's a crystal. I was like, what's that moving thing? He's like, you have to keep the energy flowing. I was like, I'm literally going to sit here. There's plants everywhere. He has books he gives away. Like, we it's like very reflective of you. had like 30 lucky cats on the table Love next it. to me and Penry, who sits next to me. People... <laughs> People either thought it was super creepy or they loved it. But, um, but I think I think part of it is that the interactions that you have and even the goal that you have doesn't change in the office and outside of the office. Mm-hmm. So the way I looked at it, you know, so we have a we have a whole program on coaching coming up next week. So all of the LMS leaders are flying in from all over the world to talk about coaching. I'm leading a panel, and they're like, "So Mike, what's your philosophy on coaching?" And I'm like. Well, it's my same philosophy of everything, which is like, you know, our job is to help people become realized and productive and happy. And in a work context, you are literally entrusted to their care by the business. Like there's almost no one in the whole world that is more impactful on the people who report into you than you are as their boss. And so how do you take that responsibility? And I take it in that it's my same responsibility I have with everybody, which is to understand what do you need? How can I be helpful? You know, sometimes it's nice. Sometimes it's not so nice. Right? People need different things at different times. But my commitment is how am I going to help people be successful? And, you know, if I look at the teams that I've had, the direct teams and the extended teams, it's, it's all been about helping those people become more realized people. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the nice things about LinkedIn is that, People who clear the bar to work here are already pretty good, you know, and and especially when you get up to more senior ranks, people have been experienced. And, you know, I'm not teaching people a lot of stuff about what they do every day. Um, More often than not, they're teaching me about the specifics. But it's about, you know, how can they be more authentic to themselves? How can they get past certain hangups that they have? How can they be more communicative because, you know, they feel like that it's not risky, you know, that they can actually say what they want to say in a meeting? Like, it's those kinds of things that, especially for more senior people, those are the things that are holding you back. Mm-hmm. It's not that you don't know how to do spreadsheets or close a deal or, you know, that kind of stuff. It's more that as a person showing up, you're holding back in some way. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, if I can help bring that to the surface, if I can help sort of clear some of those blocks, it's all there, you know. And and I've had the good fortune of having people working for me who are down with that. You know, I think uh, there may be some people who are not open to that style of coaching or that kind of support. But I think there's a reason why I'm at LinkedIn. I think it's it's part of our, our culture. Yeah. And do you, it's interesting, like sales and compassion aren't mm. two words that you would typically put together just because sales culture is often difficult. It's strenuous. It's stressful. So I'm curious for you, like, can you just share some examples of where you've seen compassion play into the world of sales, whether it's people who report to you or people in your org? Yeah. Well, I mean, the first thing is customers, mm-hmm. right? So from a sales perspective, the whole name of the game is creating customer value, right? We had you know, Shapiro come in and gave really a motto and sort of a mantra for the whole sales organization, which is it's not about monetization. It's not about driving revenue, which are very kind of zero sum and internally focused concepts. It's about how you're creating value for, for our customer. If you've got that mentality, customers, people who report to you, peers, they're still all people. So, like, you don't get a pass on taking advantage of customers to, like, you know, close a deal, but you're really compassionate, Mm -hmm. you know. 
And compassion for customers, you know, can sometimes be at odds with the short-term revenue goal that you have and that makes it hard. But I think not getting out of your same mentality when you're in a customer situation, I think for me has worked really well. So, so here's a good example. So I run the agents, global agency team as part of my team. And WPP is the world's biggest agency holding company. Um, they put on these uh, conferences or they're called unconferences uh, <laughs> called Stream. And they have them all over the world, different places. The original one is in Greece, which sounds cool, but it's at a decommissioned Club Med in Marathon, Greece. Wow. I've gone twice and I was advised and did bring my own sheets and pillow with me. Okay. So this is not Santorini. This is not <laughs> not Santorini or Ojai, California, which is where the U.S. one is, which is much nicer. But I went there and the first year I didn't know necessarily a lot of people. I taught yoga. I signed up to like, you know, actually teach the yoga classes. I gave a lecture on karma and leadership, which I had no idea what I was going to say. So at the conference, you sign up for different talks. LinkedIn had an official talk, which was about online transparency and a bunch of stuff that's, you know, very pertinent to our business. And then you can sign up to give a personal one. And so I, I gave this talk and basically I became, I felt like I was one of the hosts of this conference. Hmm. And so... You know, is that good business? I don't know. You know, like it, I didn't close a deal there because of it. But when I go and see people from that agency, like they know me as the guy who like, you know, talked about all this stuff or they took my yoga class. You know, there, there are some very prominent people who've taken my yoga class. I actually didn't know who they were when I was adjusting them or whatever. And then after the class, they're like, do you know who that was? That's the CEO of blah, blah, blah. I'm like, they have really tight hips. <laughs> <laughs> I don't care what their job is. <laughs> you know, and, and so I don't know. I think, you know, from a, your question about sales and, you know, how do you have mindfulness in a sales situation? I think it's easier said than done, but the reality is reality. And you develop a worldview around how you think you need to act in reality. And like that doesn't change based on the situation. And so if you feel like your morality or your you know, composure or the things that you deem acceptable change based on how much money is at stake or whatever, then you don't actually have like a well, – that is your worldview. Your worldview is that you'll change it for money or you'll change it for some other purposes. And that's OK, but I think you need to be honest about that. And I think if you ask most people like – are you an honest person or are you mindful or whatever? They say yes. Like, well, what if there was a million bucks and no one would know and blah, blah, <laughs> blah. And like then it gets a little bit more murky. Mm -hmm. um, but I think, you know, if you've got real clarity on what's right and wrong and how you think the world works, the situations don't don't change that. Yeah, the theme I'm hearing from you, from you is integration. Yeah, yeah, integrity, well, integrity, integrity but like true that, yeah. integration of just bringing yourself everywhere. And there's this sort of feeling that in a corporate environment you can't bring yourself, and so you've got people who compartmentalize. That's a a big passion of mine is how do we integrate? I think it's not as accepted in other businesses as it is at LinkedIn. Right. So we're a compassionate management culture. You know, our CEO is, you know, uh, on the side helps 13,000 elementary schools teach compassion. Like that's not normal. Right? right. Like we're we're definitely blessed to be in a culture that supports that. You know, I think it's just finding what works for you, even if you're in a different place that may not be as accepting. I have a hard time believing that people won't resonate with 
really being compassionate. And I think maybe one thing that's worth pointing out, and it's it's certainly get some questions at LinkedIn, like compassionate and compassionate management doesn't mean that you're nice all the time and it doesn't mean that you're a pushover. Right. Right. So people are like, how can you be a compassionate manager and fire that person? Well, like those things aren't at odds with each other. Part of being compassionate is living in truth and like dealing with what is. Mm -hmm. Right. So everyone pretending that you're doing a good job, but really you're doing a terrible job. That's not compassionate. That's everyone knowing that you're doing a terrible job, but just pretending mm-hmm. you're not. Mm-hmm. And like, what do they think of you? How's that impacting your self-esteem? Yeah. Like, nothing is more stressful than I've, I've done it myself. Like, I've been at jobs where I have not been performing well. I know it. It's super stressful. And, you know, not that I'm wishing someone would fire me, but addressing it head on and saying, hey, let's just be real. This is not working out so well. Probably not working out for you either. What do you want to do? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. and and you know, it doesn't always mean that you have to be fired that moment or go on a plan or whatever. But I think people appreciate when you cut through the BS and you actually like say what everyone already knows, because then you're having a real conversation. That to me is compassionate. You know, someone struggling and everyone just ignoring it and pretending like everything's fine. I don't know what that is, but that's not compassionate. Yeah. yeah. And you you said it before, being vulnerable, being authentic, not lying, right? Yeah. That was your first step. Yeah. Like just cut into the chase and just being real and yeah. and when it comes to compassionate leadership i mean those are really the qualities that that we as leaders need to exhibit so that others can be lead by example that others can see us and we can provide that space of psychological safety which we know is super important in well that, that was my point around inspiration right so like you know people have asked me and it's so i, I get embarrassed like you know talking about stuff like they're like how do you inspire people how do you inspire i'm like i don't know hmm. you know you're like, real I, yeah i know i know how to be authentic to myself and you know act in a way that hopefully sets a, a good example you know and if that is something that inspires people to understand that you can behave in that way in the environments that we're in that's sort of what I'm trying to accomplish. Yeah. Who so, inspires you? I'm curious. <laughs> I don't know. I don't have a good answer for that. Well, the first one should have been your wife. I was just going to say <laughs> your wife. <laughs> we'll start there. Yeah, thanks. Good save. Or Leah I and mean, Jackie. I mean, I mean my wife. I don't, you know, I, I think the real answer is it's people who are out in the world actually making a difference that they really believe in. I find that to be really inspirational. And it's funny, you're asking me, I actually don't have like 10 names off the tip of my tongue, but it's it's really about being passionate and actually getting out and doing it, um, the action around it. I think that's inspirational. I don't know what that means for me if well, I need to I do think, that. Well, I think, I mean, what I, what I see from you is like you're so real and grounded and connected to who you are that to then like look to someone else and be like, I'm so inspired. Like you just kind of go to that. Like mm-hmm. like you're already kind of embodying that. So maybe it doesn't feel so like I need that, right? Because yeah. you already have it within yourself is what yeah. I see a little bit. Yeah. If you don't know, Mikey, the energy that you give is very actualized and very mm. grounded. Yeah. Like that's what I get from you the moment I meet you. And I know we know that energy because we feel it. So, for sure. Yeah. Wow, That's I didn't powerful. realize I was signing up for like a therapy program here too. This is awesome. <laughs> we can you keep going. Lot, you get a lot in the arena when you're with us. Um, so we're coming up on time, but what what haven't we covered? Like what haven't you shared or said that could be important for our listeners to know? I think I've covered a lot of what I really believe in. It's intentional. You know, I think that's a big piece of it is that it doesn't just happen. You know, we talked about serendipity and whatever, and that's that's all great, but it's intentionally making a difference or just being intentional about what you're doing. 
you know. So my intention around helping as many people as possible in the world, like really, truly, like that's that's my intention. And I think if you commit to that intention, whatever you believe in, the opportunities to live that intention will manifest themselves. I think it's just really being specific about it and committing to it. My spiritual teacher just said something to me two weeks ago. He said, effort is the spiritual currency of this world. Mm. And I was like, wow, that just, I mean, what you just said is yeah. like the drop. Yeah. Like that's that's how you get where you want to go. It's, it's effort and intention. There's a reason why there's all this language like spiritual warrior, worry of light. Like I used to think those were just like T-shirts, you know, like, spiritual, <laughs> spiritual warrior. Gangster. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that is a t- that, that is, is a line of yoga wear. But actually, it's super hard to like not compromise your values, not compromise your integrity, what you're really trying to do. I think the reframe is that the challenges that are put a, put in front of you, those are actually the opportunities to learn the thing you're supposed to learn, you know, exhaust the karma and sort of the the sources and seeds of those things. And, you know, I mean, it's easy to say, right? When, when you're faced with a real problem, it's hard. It's hard to be like, oh, yeah, that's just an opportunity. But I think that's why that language exists, right? To really walk on that path and to embody it, it's real effort. And I think the more intentional you are about where you want to end up, the, the more likely you are to get there. Yeah. Yeah. Something that you're giving us to kind of walk away with, I think, to kind of sum this up is also that practice does not make you a master. It makes you a student. Yeah. It's practice. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, I don't know. I don't see a lot of like enlightened masters walking around. Maybe they all live in the Himalayas or whatever. but, (laughs) But whatever your best is, you can also give yourself a break. Right. Because there's a lot of like there's a lot of like you should do this. You got to do this. You got to wake up. You got like the worst thing I ever did was feel guilty about not meditating. Because not only you're not meditating, then you're like feeling guilty about mm-hmm, not meditating. Mm-hmm. It's like a double whammy. Things are hard, right? But I think if you're moving in the right direction, you know, even if you don't make, you know, great strides every day, you're still going to inch towards the goal that you're going for. But I think especially, you know, for a LinkedIn crowd or people who work in, you know, type A New York, high pressure <laughs> kind of jobs, how can you give yourself a break? You know, and and realize that, you know, you're actually doing amazing stuff and really not have that expectation that's beyond what's reasonable. Well, thank you. This was awesome. I'm going to say on behalf of both of us, because I know I feel so inspired right now, you know, like I really do. And specifically, like to meditation practice, like to your point is like you believe, you believe, you believe. But are you are you practicing? Are you practicing? Are you practicing? It takes two to to really, yeah. really go all in. And so thank you so much for, for sharing your wisdom with us, for talking to our Leah and I and to our listeners. Yeah. Um, there are amazing, amazing, amazing content in this episode. And thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you, listeners. Thanks, Mike. Uh, if you all want more of In the Arena, you can find us on iTunes and Spotify, In the Arena, LinkedIn, and we will see you all soon. Thanks for joining us on the journey. Thanks, guys. Have a great day.